Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today is a national digital currency coming to the U.S., and what would that look like? Plus, coders have teamed up with scholars of British literature to decode Charles Dickens's secret notes. And the very clever wine bricks from the Prohibition era that helped keep the wine industry afloat. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. William Jennings Bryan is probably rolling over in his grave. Forget the gold standard, the U.S. Federal Reserve is considering adopting a digital dollar. Now, you may have heard rumblings about this because last month the Federal Reserve put out a long-awaited paper considering the pros and cons of a digital currency, but stopped short of taking a position on one way or the other. Now, it's not unprecedented. China started a trial of a digital currency in January of 2020, and India announced plans to do the same. But what exactly is a national digital currency? How would it work? Now, in terms of user experience, it would probably be like using Cash App or Venmo, but the money would be issued as digital cash, or a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, by the U.S. Mint, just like they print bills and mint coins. What makes a digital dollar different, for one, is the removal of the middleman, so to speak, and of transaction fees. So when you use something like Venmo, the app goes through their company and then a series of banks to get to the person or institution you're sending money to. There's a whole lot of checks through multiple parties, and each check comes with transaction fees. NPR notes that in 2020, those transaction fees added up to over $110 billion. But a digital dollar would function more like cash. You tap your device with its digital wallet at checkout, and the money is immediately and directly transferred to the cashier. Basically like cash, except tied to your identity. And that would also shift liability in digital transactions away from commercial banks and to the Federal Reserve, CNBC notes. And NPR points out two strong pros for a digital dollar. First is that it could put pressure on credit card companies and payment processors to lower their fees and be more competitive. Second is that it would enable people without bank accounts to participate in cashless transactions. 5% of American households don't have a bank account, which means they're unable to access the increasing number of goods and services that only operate via cards or digital payments. Relatedly, it could also be a conceivably more straightforward way for the government to send out benefits, like the COVID-19 stimulus checks. Those could have gone straight to everyone's digital wallets. That is, everyone who had opted in to use the digital dollar and digital wallets, and that would remain to be seen. Uptick has been slow in China, where private providers that people are familiar with continue to be more popular. No doubt, many people will also be wary about giving more data to the federal government, and not just because the government itself could mine one's personal data, but because it could get hacked by an outside party. The U.S. government is not exactly known for being the most tech-forward ordinarily, so NPR says some serious funding would need to go towards modernizing the nation's financial infrastructure in order to safely implement a digital dollar. And given some of those technological concerns, experts say it could take five to ten years to implement a digital currency, and considering nations like China and India are already running trials, we'll be pretty far behind if we don't get a move on. Although we were also far behind on things like chip cards, so I suppose it's par for the course. Quoting NPR, 
There's a big concern that by moving slowly, the U.S. is letting other countries shape standards for national digital currencies, and the popularity of the dollar could be diminished. After all, for decades, it has been the world's primary reserve currency, meaning many countries hold their reserves in U.S. dollars. But Fed Chair Jerome Powell has made it clear he's in no hurry. Last year, a reporter asked the central banker whether he was worried the U.S. was falling behind countries like China. I think it's more important to do this right than to do it fast, he replied, end quote. Which I can appreciate. They're currently asking for public feedback in addition to conducting further research. And writing in Bloomberg earlier this month, Lev Menand and Morgan Ricks appeared skeptical that the Fed would successfully prioritize the needs of the public over the interests of the banks. Remarking on the report, they say, quote, The Fed loses sight of the public interest in a number of ways. It insists that private firms should have a role in providing any new federal digital dollar. It also expresses concerns that a digital dollar might lure people and businesses away from bank deposits, which would be costly for banks. To avoid this, the Fed suggests designing the digital dollar to be less attractive, for example, by not paying any interest. According to the Fed, a public option for digital money probably should be watered down, provided through existing financial institutions with balances capped and no interest paid. These features would intentionally discourage people from using the public digital dollar and protect profit margins of the financial sector, but it's hard to see how the public would benefit from that. End quote. No doubt many debates are forthcoming as we move forward on the possibility of a digital currency here in the U.S., and if any Americans listening want to give your own feedback, the public comment period will be open for about three and a half more months. Link to do so is in the show notes. So the Morgan Library and Museum here in New York City is home to the original handwritten manuscript of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, which they put out on display each Christmas. A few years back, they published a version of the book that has scans of his handwritten manuscript pages side-by-side the typeset final edition, so you can check out his notes as you read along. At least in theory. His 1800s handwriting, rife with strikethroughs and ink blots, is pretty tough to parse for modern eyes. But his usual manuscript handwriting has nothing on his shorthand. Also at the Morgan Library and Museum are some of Dickens's notes and letters from throughout his lifetime, written in his trademark shorthand. Scholars have tried to decipher his shorthand for over a century, but haven't made much headway. That is, until the University of Leicester put a copy of one letter in particular online and offered a prize of 300 British pounds to whoever could decode the most of it. And the winner? a Californian computer technical support specialist who admits to getting C's in literature back in school. With the assistance of some deciphering workshops on Zoom, which taught attendees about Dickinson's particular form of shorthand, the winner, Shane Baggs, managed to decode more of the mysterious symbols in the letter than any other of the 1,000 people who entered the contest. Part of what makes the letter and others from Dickens so tricky is that it's not just an old form of shorthand, but one which he adapted independently over the years. Quoting the New York Times, Dickens learned an obsolete form of shorthand when he was 16 from a manual called Brachigraphy, written by an 18th century shorthand writer Thomas Gurney. 
Early in his career, Dickens was a court reporter and a parliamentary reporter, where having a system for quick note-taking came in handy. Over time, the symbols and abbreviations he used evolved so that his personal shorthand became unintelligible to outsiders. Dickens himself referred to it as that savage stenographic mystery in his most autobiographical novel, David Copperfield. End quote. Dr. Hugo Bowles, one of the organizers of the contest that Baggs participated in and the author of Dickens and the Stenographic Mind, says that for a century and a half, people have only been able to crack about 10 of the symbols in the letter. But with crowdsourcing online, they could mix Dickens experts with computer scientists and finally make more headway. The Dickens experts are key for identifying what abbreviations might stand for. For example, HW refers to Household Words, a periodical that Dickens owned and edited, and what looks to us like an at symbol is in fact another journal that Dickens owned called All the Year Round. And all working together, 70% of the letter has now been deciphered, and its contents have shed light on a dispute Dickens was having with the Times of London about an ad that he was trying to run that they'd rejected. The actual letter he would have written in fully readable text has been lost, but it's presumed this shorthand version was a copy that Dickens made for his own records. While The Guardian lays out some ways this letter could be giving us more details about a particularly turbulent period in Dickens' life, his marriage was falling apart right as he became one of the biggest celebrities in England and he didn't exactly handle it gracefully, scholars think that some of the other yet-to-be-decoded texts might include notes on his published works or even stories that were never published. And they want the public's help in decoding them. Dr. Bowles, along with Dr. Claire Wood from the University of Leicester, have launched Dickens Code, a site where you can sign up to help crack the code on a number of Dickens's shorthand texts. They run free workshops to get you up to speed with all the information that you need and will be running the program for at least a year. So if you are a fan of puzzles or of 19th century English literature, check it out. As The Guardian put it, playing their SEO cards right, forget Wordle. Can you crack the Dickens Code? The Prohibition era in the United States is endlessly fascinating to me. The creative lengths that people went to in order to continue consuming alcohol or to keep their businesses running is nothing short of remarkable. I mean, not to mention some of the cocktails that were created during that time period are absolutely awesome. But today I learned about one industry-saving covert practice that I hadn't heard about before. Wine bricks. So as Vinepair tells it, when Prohibition went into effect at the start of 1920, vineyards had a real problem on their hands. What to do with all of their crops? Did they try to pivot to another, much less profitable product with their grapes? Did they tear up all of their grape plants and try to plant something else, something that would take a while to get to the point where they could sell it and also probably be less profitable in the end? And they had to consider all this while knowing that if they did tear up their grape plants and then Prohibition was overturned and they tried to replant them, it would take as many as 10 years for the plants to return to the high quality that they needed. A lot of them ended up pivoting to other crops, opening orchards and the like, but others stuck to their grapes and came up with a clever product that actually increased their profits substantially. So, despite those vineyards' obvious purpose being wine production, the vineyards themselves weren't immediately illegal. The Volstead Act said that it was fine to grow grapes if the grapes were used for non-alcoholic consumption. 
Now, naturally, the government knew that some vineyards would try to get around this, so they had another stipulation. If an individual person used grapes from that vineyard to make wine, and it was found out that the vineyard owner who sold that person the grapes was aware that the person had done that, they would both be arrested. But, as Vinepair put it, quote, If the grape grower gave clear warning that the grapes were not to be used for the creation of alcohol, and those grapes passed through enough hands so that even if the end result was wine, the grape grower did not know the bootlegger's intentions, the grower was in the clear. End quote. And the vineyards could sell more than grapes. They could make and sell juice as well as juice concentrate. And this meant that non-alcoholic wine was basically all good. Non-alcoholic wine could, of course, under the right circumstances, be turned into alcoholic wine by the consumer. They would have to dissolve the juice concentrate in water and ferment it, which not everyone would exactly know how to do. And the vineyards couldn't tell them how to do it without becoming culpable for knowing consumers were using their juice concentrate that way. So instead, vineyards decided to tell customers what not to do. They packaged the concentrated grape juice up in boxes called wine bricks and printed all the instructions on the packaging as warnings. Quoting again, If you were to purchase one of these bricks, on the package there would be a note explaining how to dissolve the concentrate in a gallon of water. And then right below it, the note would continue with a warning, instructing you not to leave that jug in a cool cupboard for 21 days or it would turn into wine. That warning was in fact your key to vino, and thanks to loopholes in prohibition legislation, consuming 200 gallons of this homemade wine for your personal use was completely legal. It just couldn't leave your home, something wine brick packages were also very careful to remind consumers. Besides the warning, wine brick makers such as Vino Seno were very open about what they knew their product was being used for, even including the flavors such as Burgundy, Claret, and Riesling one might encounter if they mistakenly left the juice to ferment, end quote. And the wine bricks were a hit, making nouveau riche out of the vineyard families who sold them, because demand for wine had only risen during Prohibition, but due to all of these regulations, the suppliers had decreased in number substantially. And so, the wine industry was able to weather the long 13 years of Prohibition and emerge even more innovative and resilient than before. So remember how I've mentioned a couple of times about towns that are monitoring future COVID surges by analyzing sewage? Well, the long-awaited official sewage tracking tool is now live on the CDC's COVID tracking website. Pulling data from over 400 sites in the U.S., the new map on the site shows the change in levels of SARS-CoV-2 RNA in wastewater in each area over a 15-day period. As The Verge reminds us, quote, Unlike testing data, wastewater doesn't rely on people showing up to get tested. It's passive. While COVID-19 testing has been one of the main sources of tracking the presence of the virus, wastewater can put communities and health officials ahead of the spread of COVID-19 because it detects the virus in its early stages, end quote. Amy Kirby, the team lead for the National Wastewater Surveillance System from which this data is pulled and which was launched by the CDC in September of 2020, says that hundreds of more sites will be launched across the nation in the coming weeks. So if your area isn't live on the site yet, it may be soon. And if you're not in the U.S., I know at least 
least Alberta and possibly other parts of Canada have been tracking wastewater, and the EU last year mentioned hoping to develop something similar to the U.S.'s National Wastewater Surveillance System, so it's worth looking into if you're curious. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 